Hi, I'm Michael London, and welcome to Spidcast, the future of collaborative video production brought to you by Indie Source Magazine, where they believe free is better. On this episode, we are talking with writer, director, producer, filmmaker, and somewhat of a pioneer of digital production for the web, Sandra Payne. And we'll also visit with co-founder and CEO of JTS.TV, Carter Mason. Carter will share with us some of the all-important business side of show business. First up is Sandra Payne. Sandra, welcome to Spidcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I was born in Alaska. We'll start back then. Um, I always think that's a little bit of a fun part of my story. I was born in Fairbanks and um, grew up in different places around the world. So I lived in Indonesia for two years when I was in middle school and then went to boarding school for a year in Austria and then finished high school in Seattle. And I've lived in North Carolina and Oklahoma, where I graduated from college. And then we lived in Dallas for um, eight years, where I wrote for Barney, um, and also uh, did ancillary products for his sister show, Wishbone, the PBS show, Wishbone. And then we moved to Los Angeles in 1999. That sounds suspiciously like the storyline of an army brat. Um, actually, no. Um, my dad is an engineer, and so <laughs> my parents were met and married in Alaska when it was still a territory, and then uh, my dad was a civil engineer. So there was a job that was happening in Indonesia on the island of Sulawesi, and it was a nickel mine. And um, so my dad was there helping build a dam to provide hydroelectric power. So we had the life of Riley when we lived there. It was on the equator. It was fantastic. And um, I had correspondence course school and spent the afternoons running around the jungle and going to the pool. <laughs> <laughs> so has your um, globe trotting helped with your writing? I think it's critical. I think one of the things that I've come to realize as I get older is how valuable it is to live. I think that as a writer, you have to have experiences to draw from, and the, there's two different ways to live a life, and one is to experience life and to live life and to choose to go after adventure, and another way of living is to be someone who's maybe more stationary, but I think from my perspective, I it's hard for me to know what it would be like, actually, because I, ha I don't have that ability to access what that life would be like, but it seems to me it would be harder to um, be able to craft story and to craft characters because you would have so much less exposure to different aspects of life. And so I find my background really helpful when I'm diving in to figure out who a character is. So via Indonesia, Alaska, uh, North Carolina, and Texas, how did you find your way to L.A.? Well, um, when... When I got the job writing for Barney, um, pretty much Dallas had a couple shows that were in production at the time, one of which was Walker, Texas Ranger. It was 99. And uh, so I was writing for Barney, and then 
maybe the next step might have been writing for Walker, and then that was that. And so when I was there, I went to several of the Austin Film Festivals, and at the time it was called the Heart of Screenwriting Film Festival. So there was a lot, they still do a lot of seminars and stuff about screenwriting, and the focus was very much on the writer. And every single time I went, they'd say, you have to live in L.A. Like, all the panelists would come from L.A., and they would all stare at you and say, you should live in L.A. And I kept hearing that over and over, and I was resistant. But when I was finishing up my first year with Barney, I realized, you know what, I kind of need to live in L.A. <laughs> so we came out here and had a look around and and decided to take the plunge, and I've never regretted that. It was a great decision, and very, very happy. I think it's much more possible now to not have to actually live in L.A. to make a life happen in the entertainment realm, but even in 99, that was a different world. We didn't have digital content like we do now, and there, it, you just everything, I think, was much more geared for life in Hollywood being in Hollywood. So tell us about that. Tell us how you how you made the transition from traditional media to the online world. Well, you know, after kicking around Hollywood for a couple years, after I finished up my stint with Barney, and I wrote some screenplays and got them optioned, and it's all, you know, so exciting. But as you know, um, the average time from writing a script to getting it on screen is seven years. So you can't really hold your breath. And it was getting frustrating for me because I wanted to I wanted to see my work on the screen and I had things I wanted to write and and to have to rely on other people to greenlight you and to make that decision it was it was difficult and um, as an artist as a lot of us are I think we all have that drive to do our art and if you're a screenwriter your art is dependent upon a chain of so many other people and. Um, so when it, in 2008, I went to the Future of Television conference. Um, I got this awesome opportunity to go through another friend, and it was an $800 conference, and I got in for a lot cheaper. And um, <laughs> when I got there, it was mind-blowing. It was, again, 2008, February of 2008. I remember it clearly. And I sat through the whole day listening to like the head of Sony and all these people talking about where we were heading and all of a sudden, I was like, what is happening? The entire industry is shifting. And I had no idea. I had vaguely at the time heard of web series. I'd heard of Lonely Girl 15. I didn't really, hadn't even considered making one myself. At the end of that day, I was like, I got to make a web series. <laughs> and um, happily, one of the people I bumped into turned out to be Tim Street. He was on the board of the International Academy of Web Television. And he was wonderfully accessible and said, you know, when I said I wanted to do this, he was like, well, call him when I was ready. And um, I did, and he gave me some great advice, and I plotted forward. It took me a year, and I finally was in the middle of production of my web series in 2009, and I wrote on my Facebook page, I love making web series. And my friend Kristen Burt, um, who was the creator of the web files and collaborated um, with me on that show, um, she called me and said, hey, do you want to make a web series? And she, her idea was a web series where we interviewed web series creators about their web series. And I was like, that's genius. Let's do it. So we dove in, and um, over the course of the next year, we made 51 episodes, about one per week. 
and um, and met so many great people in the web series world and had a wonderful, wonderful year. Um, but ended up deciding at the end of that year for me personally that uh, I wanted to get back to writing some fictional work. And, and I was pretty much letting go of being the writing side because the web files was taking so much of our time that I was really producing and directing more than anything else, and I wanted to get back to being a writer. So uh, I had a short film that I had written, and so in late 2010 I started working on producing that short film, and it's called Death, Inc. And um, when I started working on that, uh, I had a makeup test day that I did in October of that year for the short film, and when I, I paid the makeup artist for the test day, and I was like, gosh, if I'm going to pay for the makeup test, <laughs> I might as well make a web series. Um, so that's how Ask Grimm started, which is um, my third web series. My first one, by the way, the one that I was making when the web files happened was Life with Kat and McKay, and, um, and that was a romantic comedy. So it was a romantic comedy talk show, and then the... Um, fictional comedy talk show called Ask Grimm, starring Tom Conkle, because um, he he's in my short film as the Grim Reaper. So we ran down to, my husband and I went down to Venice Beach, interviewed a bunch of people about what questions they would ask the Grim Reaper, and came back and then sat Tom down in the chair after his makeup was on and said, okay, answer some questions about from the audience about this. And we made three episodes that we uploaded in October, and got a bunch of people writing back saying, oh, I want to ask the Grim Reaper something. And at, by that time, I'd done enough web series. I was like, oh, wow, we have engagement, <laughs> which is a big deal. So we ended up making eight more. So we've had, we have 11 episodes of Ask Grim. And then currently I'm on hiatus from my three. Uh, I won't be making any more web files and likely not any more of Ask Grimm. I have a few episodes of Life with Cat McKay to finish putting out there, um, but I'm currently a staff writer for Chick, which is a friend of mine series, um, Kai Shoremaken, and that series is um, it's fantastic. I just love working on it, and I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Um, it's basically this quirky drama web series that chronicles the exciting adventures of one young woman's quest to become a superhero. And we're working on season two, and I'm part of her writing staff. Um, of There's four of us and her. And so we took about six weeks to break the story out, and then we're each writing episodes right now. And it's been a blast, so much fun. So can't wait to see how that one comes out for season two. And that one is called Chick, right? Yeah. And where can we see that? Um, Chick is at whoischick.com and also on YouTube. And I think it's on YouTube at whoischick.com as well. And tell us, Sandra, about your experience as the events chairman of IAWTV. <laughs> well, that has been a rather exciting ride. Um, it turns out that there are a lot of events that the International Academy of Web Television is up to. And um, it's been really wonderful in many ways just because of the people that I'm able to talk with to put them on panels and help um, with 
building out uh, a presence for the IWTV in various places around the country right now. So as a matter of fact, working on Blog World, New York, it's Blog World and New Media Expo um, in New York City, and it's the June 5th through 7th coming up in 20, um, next month. And what's exciting about that one is there's an entire web TV track going on for that. 24 different panels all about web television with some really great people who are going to be speaking exactly to the topics that a lot of us want to be hearing from and about. And so I'm very excited on that front to be helping out with things like that. And we have VidCon that's coming up at the end of June, and we just finished up a Digital Hollywood run with uh, several panels there. And, um, and I'm already working with some people on South by Southwest so that next March we'll have a presence at South by Southwest. Very cool. Lots to learn there. So give us a bit of a preview for the newbies. What is your advice to someone just jumping into web media? Gosh, I have so, I have so much advice. Um, I've learned so many lessons. It's so One of the wonderful things about this space is that you live and die on your own sword. I mean, you just have the opportunity to really learn. And, um, I mean, sometimes it's terrible because you learn lessons that you're like, ah, oh, gosh, I wish I had known ahead of time. And so one of the things I would say is there's a lot of resources out there now, a lot more than probably were out there in 2008. So read up and study if you are going to be launching and going forward in the web series world. There's a lot of content that you're going to be competing with. And I think that the biggest lesson from my perspective is that it's not really about creating a web series, um, at least 50%. I would say more like 75% of your time will need to be spent marketing your web series because it's, it's definitely not a if you build it, they will come situation. You have to be out there finding every eyeball and getting them engaged and getting them excited about your web series and asking them to come back and watch future episodes and building your fan base. So I think that if you're going to start a web series, your work starts now. You, you have to start, um, if you're new to the whole thing, start now to build your presence online, to have a social media presence, to be able to have a certain level of people that you can tell that you're launching a web series and then keep them posted on how your progress is going. And then from the creative standpoint, make sure that you really have thought through your idea. I think that one of the mistakes for me back in 2008, which maybe in the future won't, won't be a mistake so much, but was making a romantic comedy. I mean, my romantic comedy, you know, having written for Barney, my sensibilities are kind of on the sweet side. I'm not super edgy. And so here's my little web series out there with, like, <laughs> no nothing edgy in it, really. And I realized later, gosh, I pretty much aimed for an audience that wasn't at the time watching online video. I mean, so you have to think of who's watching online video right now. What is the demographic there? How will you be able to reach out to them? And if you are really going to target them, you have to think of ideas that are going to fit with who's watching. So if you're going to make... Uh, a romantic comedy, maybe now is more possible than what it was 2008, but it's still going to be a tougher road to find your audience for romantic comedies than it would be if you're going to make sci-fi. 
and that's going to be true for the foreseeable future, I think. Sage advice, Sandra. So speak for a moment, if you will, about the help that collaboration affords. I think that one of the wonderful things about you guys' podcast and and everybody who's out there who's helping build this space is that we all are put in touch with each other and we we do support each other. And I think that has been the biggest, most wonderful thing about being in the web series world is that the level of support that you can get um, in this side of content creation, probably because the, it's a low threat level. I mean, when you're playing with the big guns in Hollywood, you know, there's millions of dollars on the table and everybody's fighting for every last little scrap. But in, in our little realm, yeah, there's not a lot of money on the table. So everybody seems pretty helpful and, um, and truly interested in making sure everybody is successful. And I think it's been absolute blast. Plus, it helps you hone your skills. There's really nothing more telling than putting up a video and having people watch it and comment on it immediately. And you don't really get that if you're writing for television. You might not necessarily know what's hitting your audience right with your episode on television versus your episode on YouTube. You're going to get a lot of comments. <laughs> so, um, But anyway, these podcasts and things like this are are just fantastic. And then speaking about your web series and content, where can we see everything Sandra? <laughs> well, thank you for asking. That's so sweet of you. Um, hopefully my short film, Death Inc., again, will be coming to a festival near you, so keep an eye out for that. But um, I do have several websites. spwrite.com is my home site, and purstog.tv is my web series site. And both of those are also my names on Twitter. SP Wright is sort of my overall brand of me. And Perspag TV is my web series brand that I put all my web series underneath of it. And then I do have Ask Grimm, And the web files is also out there on Twitter. And then YouTube, I have channels for all of those things. So SP Wright has a channel on YouTube. Perspag TV has a channel on YouTube. And Ask Grimm has a channel. Although Ask Grimm's channel is actually called Rappin' with the Reaper, without a G. And, yeah, I shouldn't have named it that. <laughs> and the Web Files has a YouTube channel and a Daily Motion channel. Well, you certainly walk your talk when you mentioned having a web presence. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. That was like a huge laundry list of web presence there. Uh, the fast way to find me is go to my Twitter because SP Wright, I will definitely respond to you. I respond to everyone who writes me on SP Wright, and same with Perstock TV. I love it when people write me on those things. It's so exciting to have people actually talk to me. Excellent, Sandra. And now for that one last nugget of advice. Well, I think the best thing I can say to someone is, if you're even considering it, go for it. It's so much fun. You should totally make a web series. Don't let anything stop you. Just go out there and do it. Sandra Payne, thank you so much for joining us today on Spidcast. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. Spidcast, brought to you by Indie Source Magazine, the fastest-growing independent filmmaker resource and the only free publication of its kind. Now, their mission is to bring you not only stories of the industry's highly celebrated, but stories and insight from players in all areas of the media creation process. At IndieSource, they believe free is better. I agree with that. Visit them at IndieSourceMag.com. Spitcast.
Joining us now is Carter Mason, the co-founder and CEO of JTS.TV. Carter, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's jump right in. Give us a Reader's Digest version of you, Carter. My background is uh, in the business and legal side of film, and then also being an actor uh, and writer myself. And so I created uh, JTS.TV, um, seeing a need for both uh quality content that's independent to emerge uh, amidst all of the lesser quality is the nice way to say it, uh, web series and independent productions out there, and also a financial model that would sustain for these independent creators uh, TV quality programming that's not made for a network or studio. So what I, you know, mostly right now we're focusing on finding the quality content and uh getting the awareness out there to get subscribers to JTS.TV so that these shows are getting watched by more and more people. i got to tell you, that seems like two completely different sides of your brain. How do you do that? Well, you know, most people are not wired like I am. (laughs) I guess I call myself a hybrid uh, sometimes, and that's part of the reason um, that the idea even came about for our network is that I had these relationships with all these independent creators who... Basically, they just wanted to make their shows, and they had no concept of how to make money off of them. And part of that is that it's very difficult because nobody has figured it out completely in the digital space yet anyway. And so then to ask, you know, creatives who don't even want to deal with that aspect to figure it out, it just wasn't going to happen. And the the problem is when you have a property that is worth something, uh, and by property, I mean shows or films. And somebody else is going to create a financial model for you, and most likely it's not going to be the most beneficial to you. And so what we have right now is this plethora of people who are trying to monetize basically ad-supported content. And the only people that benefits are the advertisers and the companies with enough shows and films to get millions and millions and millions of views but then that money is spread out over a small part, a small chunk. And so for me, I was actually looking at this conversation earlier today with somebody. Um, I had a show that I was pitching, and I wasn't willing to make it in the current environment. And so the way that my business brain was thinking was we need a model that will work. We need a model that will work for TV-quality productions, which is what I wanted to do. Um, and it really wasn't out there and readily available. Uh, to anyone. And so basically the desire for my own work uh, to be sustainable was one of the factors uh, in starting JTS.TV, being creative and business-minded at the same time. So as a kid, were you a movie hound or a creative kid? Yeah, I was always creative. I was more entrepreneurial as a kid, but I was always intrigued by acting and writing, but never really uh, pursued it. I, I remember in high school actually sitting down and trying to write a novel and it was just really random for me because I was always business oriented and I did things like I promoted baseball card shows and started a baseball card shop my senior year of high school went in and opened it up after school and so the creative side of me didn't have an outlet for a long time I was so focused on business and uh, now I feel like in my life there's synergy between both the business side and the creative. I get to do both. i got to ask you, Carter, what was your best score ever uh, so far as selling a baseball card? <laughs> On a baseball card? Uh, I, I, I sold a pretty poor condition uh, 1952 Bowman Mickey Mantle for a few thousand bucks. I don't remember the exact uh, 
thing now, uh, the exact price. That's been 20 years. <laughs> I just love those stories. So you seem to be drawn to the web more so than traditional media. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I just see the, the content delivery of the, of the future. Um, the way that people want to consume media and the way that they're forced to consume quality media right now it, it is not in line. And what we see is that there are going to be more networks like us emerge that don't need a cable subscription or a broadcast mechanism other than the Internet. And so it's, the Internet is now something that almost everybody has access to. And the way that people want to consume it is to pay for what they want or watch ads when they want. Um, but if you look at uh, what people really want, the people that are trying to cut the cord from cable, you know, they're signing up for Netflix, Hulu, um, and then on their Roku boxes or their Samsung connected TVs or all the other boxy or what have you, um, they are purchasing or downloading specific channels to what they're interested in. In the cable world, you have this base subscription that you have to have before you can add anything. And that's the problem, you know, if HBO and Showtime and Stars disconnected from cable, which is not going to happen anytime in the near future, but if they did, the cable industry would die, in my opinion, because people are keeping uh, a lot of people, uh, honestly, I am one of them, I would not have a cable subscription if I could piecemeal HBO and Showtime, love their television shows, um, and if I could get those without a cable subscription and not downloading them illegally, I, I don't think that's right. <laughs> so I would cut the cord from cable myself. I completely agree with you. You know, I stopped my subscription to a satellite radio uh, service because I was being forced to pay for channels I didn't want to listen to. Uh, somebody, you know, recently I was, a, I was on a panel at the Catalina Film Festival, and somebody was asking about SOPA, and we were talking about video and piracy and what have you, and it came up, you know, my, my take on the whole thing is that when you start allowing people to buy in a way that they want to buy, piracy will go down. And you look at when the iTunes store flourished and when there were other options for buying music, do people still illegally download music? Sure. But do a lot of people pay for music? I, for one, buy more music over the... I have bought more music over the past five years than I ever did buying CDs because it's the way that I want to consume it on devices that I can listen to it. And when the video industry catches up with that, um, and we're not tied to cable for our quality programming, uh, you will see less and less piracy. I couldn't agree more. So tell us a bit about JTS.TV and what it's all about. Well, right now we have 16 independent TV shows. Uh, most of our uh, shows have some type of exclusivity. Uh, some of them, our new episode release shows right now, are all completely exclusive. Uh, and then we also have a deal with some shows where we're the only place you can get them without ads. Um, and so what we offer our subscribers is some orig original programming that they can't get anywhere else. And some of the top shows that may be difficult to find through all of the lesser quality series that are out there and available, you know, people just aren't going to watch ad after ad to get to bad show after bad show. So we kind of serve as a curator. People know that every show on our network is worth a chance. Um, I, I talk about HBO and Showtime a lot. I like the premium model, and that's really kind of, you know, after it was created, we started using the identity that we are a premium independent television network, and it's after the model of HBO without a cable subscription. And so, but you look at 
the uh, the quality of programming when one you're not thinking about sponsors, you're not thinking about ads, and two, the creator is just thinking about the creation of their project. That's the only interest they have. It's a better experience for the viewer and the fans. And I, I, I sidetrack a little bit. I do that from time to time because the, the main reason for me mentioning HBO it, and Showtime again is when you watch a show on HBO or Showtime, because of that high standard of, you know, this is just the show the way the creator wanted to make it and then they execute it the way they want to make it and not worrying about the sponsors, you know that every show on HBO or Showtime is worth a chance at least looking at the pilot. doesn't mean you're going to like every show on their networks, but it's worth a shot. And so that's our goal is just to have such a high-quality bar of content that our subscribers know that even if every single show is not their cup of tea, they're going to give it a shot with the pilot because they may find a gem in a genre that doesn't normally intrigue them, but because the show's done differently or so special or the story's so good, uh, they may find something that they like, it, you know. And so the bar of quality uh, is very important to us. And so the two standards are great story, high-quality story, and that if you watch one of our shows on a TV, if somebody walked into the room, they would just think you're watching any other TV network, that it's that quality. Love your outlook on things, Carter. I truly do. So help us, if you will, look into the future a bit. I have a Blu-ray player, and I can get several channels on that, plus Apple TV, plus a satellite dish. Will there be a time when we can look to consolidation, at least with the um, delivery hardware? Not any time in the near future, but there's already some consolidation happening. Um, what's happening is that the smaller TV, yeah, I don't even know if smaller is the right word, but um, not every... TV platform, TV set, or Blu-ray player right now um, has the capability of creating their own channel store or think it's a good idea. So you've got Yahoo TV widgets and Google TV channels um, that are starting to both gain notoriety. And Google TV has got a little bit stronger. I think Yahoo's losing a little bit of its edge. Um, but we'll see where that goes. I know they're losing some of the newer, the newer sets, and people are going more with the Google TV platform. Um, and Samsung has its own, uh, but I think they also have sets and players that work within Yahoo and Google both. Um, and so there, there are so many different devices and technologies out there um, that there are entire companies that are springing up, and their whole business model is just being able to get your video content into these hundreds of different... And it's literally hundreds. I think Netflix says... There's like 800 different platforms that they that they code for um, because there's varieties within some of the platforms. So you, they may have to have they may have to have 10 different channels for you know one type of or one company's set of devices. That's not going to change anytime soon. They're going to fight over it and they're going to try to keep their proprietary. Roku's proprietary. Roku's got three million of their devices out there now. I think is the number and. Um, you know, they're not going to shift uh, out of their platform, and they don't open it up to others to have, you know, to use Roku. So, uh, you know, the the short answer, or the long answer, I guess, uh, is that there's no real, there's not going to be any real consolidation as a whole, but there will be the major platforms uh, for TV sets and players that, 
you'll start to be able to do one Google TV app or one Yahoo TV app and get on 10 or 20 or 30 or more devices, which will help the situation. But there won't be consolidation to one. Well, not exactly the answer I was looking for at the moment, but you touched lightly on something that I'd like to dig a little deeper into, and that's new content. How would a producer catch your eye? Well, the easiest way, and right now, even though we do get a lot of submissions, um, it, send an email to info at jts.tv, and that will go to Keith Nee, our head of acquisitions. Will you know he looks at pretty much everything right now, and we plan on doing that for the near future. But for the most part, we've been very selective, and it comes from our relationships and closely monitoring the space to see what's out there. But if somebody has a TV quality production that has not been released yet, we absolutely want to look at the pilot, at least, or whatever they have to show us, the sizzle reel, whatever, and to begin discussing, because we believe that we have a better financial model. Even starting out, like, we are not writing near the size of checks we want to be writing uh, yet for royalties, but for most of our shows, to use the limited exclusive shows, for example, where we're the only place you can get it without ads, I haven't asked them, but even smaller checks than we want to write, they're bigger than they're getting from their ad-based platforms. Very cool. Now, once again, you hit on something kind of lightly. I want to uh, dig a little deeper here as well. You said you're getting a lot of your uh, content through personal relationships, which brings us to networking, which brings us to collaboration. How important is the collaborative community? Collaboration has been uh, enhanced in the independent TV community. A lot of people use the word web series. We don't really use it, especially for our shows, because web series to us doesn't convey TV quality. Um, and so you'll hear me say indie TV or independent TV community or short-form television for the smaller episode shows a lot. But, you know, there's so many websites connecting people, and that independent TV community is pretty tight-knit once you get into it. And uh, organizations like the IEWTV do a good job of trying to, you know, connect people to each other and to provide resources as well. And um, you're just seeing people that could have never met five or ten years ago uh, connecting and developing amazing projects. I think you're going to see more and more of that. And uh, filmmaking in general uh, has moved outside of Los Angeles, and there's a lot of political factors there, too, like state of California uh, not competing uh, with tax credits um, that some other places are. But then there's just the fact that you don't need as much to be in L.A. The cost of production has gone so much, you can have a professional quality camera that movies are being shot on for a few thousand dollars. Oh, yeah, the changing face of almost everything via technology. Carter, what advice do you have for someone just beginning? Well, I always say you have to have a business plan. Uh, it, it's a business. And so unless you have some source of money and you don't care about getting a return, uh, you cannot just make shows as art and expect to, you know, earn a living that way. You need to have a business plan. So you need to find out your objectives. Right now in the space, honestly, uh, there is no real sustainable model that is yet to be proven. I can show you that our numbers, when we hit 50,000 subscribers, 100,000 subscribers, we will be funding TV quality productions just based on royalty, not even like us doing original programming. Just shows on our network will be able to go out and pay people full rates. Um, and so 
understanding your objectives, which is part of a business plan, is key. If you just want to showcase your work and to try to get future work, then make that a part of your business plan. But your goals have achievable goals. You need to know what you want out of the project and why you want to get into the space. And if it's to make a lot of money, right now those opportunities are few and far between. And so you've got to talk to a lot of people and find out who is making a living doing this and how they're doing it. And if that's a price you're willing to pay to do it. And what I mean by a price that you're willing to pay is most of the people that are able to make a, le- a living on independent television right now produced for the web are working for sponsors or branded entertainment, which means you don't have 100% control in most situations of your content. Well, I guess there's got to be a trade-off somewhere along the way. So, Carter, what would be your parting shot? Uh, subscribe to JTS.TV. <laughs> Just uh, actually, yeah, that would be great. We need subscribers, and we do a three-day free trial. Um, but uh, for the filmmaker, uh, really try to be in tune with what you want to do and what you, uh, what, what you want to achieve, and look at that, and then set your roadmap for your life, and do little things every day that get you towards your goal. Um, a lot of times we look for the home run, And really, that's not the way that anything ever is really achieved. And even something that looks like a quantum leap is not a quantum leap. It's a result of little things being done consistently and regularly. And so if you already have a show, make sure that you are doing what you can to promote and network and get it out there every day, not just at big events or, you know, in spurts. Um, If you are looking to get on to productions, network all the time to find out who you can help out, whether it's paid or not paid. And then I would say advice for the fans is, uh, you know, if you want to see these top quality shows go on, look at models like JTS.TV and actually spend the money rather than watching an ad that pays a fraction of a penny for your view. Um, Buy videos on demand from independent producers if you really like it. Donate. Uh, if they're not on a network like JTS.TV, because uh, I hear every day about amazing creators who say they're not going to make any more shows until they know the money's there, because they can't do it. So if you want these shows to go on, subscribe to JTS.TV, buy videos on demand, and donate to Kickstarter and Indiegogo campaigns if there's a project that you really think is interesting and you want to see it made. I got to tell you, man, I love your passion. I love your commitment. I wish you huge and continued success. Oh, thank you so much. I really you know, appreciate the opportunity uh, to share, and I love talking about what I do. So thanks for uh, you know, wanting to know more about JTS.TV and me, and really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Spidcast. We appreciate your time and attention. You can now join the conversation at spidvid.com or on our Spidvid blog. And you can join our collaborative filmmaking community at spitvid.com. Tune in next month for another entertaining and informative episode of Spitcast. Spitcast.